Rabbi Yosef Eckstein was born in 1944 and was one of the few Jewish babies born to survive the Holocaust. His father used to tell him, you survived for a purpose, but this purpose would not be recognized until many years later. Eckstein married and had children. However, four of these children were born with the devastating condition Tay-Sachs disease. Eckstein speaks straightforwardly about this, saying, I can't tell you the pain of waiting for a baby for nine months than having to wait for six or seven months to see if the child is healthy or if it's going to die. Babies with Tay-Sachs are usually very beautiful, and this makes the pain even greater. Tay-Sachs was having a particularly devastating effect on Jewish communities, killing every child born with it. In 1983, Rabbi Eckstein founded the organization Dor Yeshurim to help others in the Jewish community protect their families from the scourge of Tay-Sachs disease. Eckstein worked with doctors, geneticists, and slowly got approval from the rabbis of different communities to genetically screen people. Dor Yeshurim does not directly tell individuals which diseases they are a carrier for in order to avoid unnecessary emotional burden. When two members of the system contemplate marriage, they, they contact the organization and order both their pins and dates of birth. When both carry a gene for the same disorder, the risk of affected offspring is 25% and is considered advisable to discontinue the plans. Today, Dor Yeshurim is a globally acclaimed organization standing at the forefront of genetic research and advances. Dor Yeshurim is credited with single-handedly eradicating Tay-Sachs from the Jewish communities of New York and effectively closing the Tay-Sachs ward at Kingsbrook Medical Center forever. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. So that story was both dark and also optimistic. Love it when our episodes start with dying babies. Yeah. Why didn't we pick a happier podcast topic, like puppies? Because if I was doing one on genetic diseases about puppies, it would be dying puppies then. No, no. Yeah, we're not doing that one. There are some genetic conditions for puppies that we could cover later, but... Uh, Only happy puppies. Fair enough. Uh, on the subject of that, you might be able to hear some panting in the background. We have a new addition to the family. We'll post a picture. We have a new puppy called Banjo, and he is currently sleeping and panting quite loudly next to me. <laughs> so yeah, sorry if that affects the audio quality, but let's be honest, it's worth it. So what are we covering today? So, as the story said, the condition's called Tay-Sachs disease. What is that? Well, it's quite an unpleasant condition. So Tay-Sachs is a genetic disorder that results in the destruction of nerve cells in the brain and the spinal cord. The destruction? Yeah, it kills the nerves. It's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just kind of make them less good. It destroys they die and they can't come back yeah and the most common form is infantile tay-sachs 
which becomes apparent around three to six months of age. So this predominantly affects babies and newborns. Oh no! So, what does it mean? So, the symptoms for this condition include uh, children being, well, babies being overly startled by noises and movement. This might be to do with some of the, the nerves being affected in signal communications. Uh, I'm not entirely sure there. Being very slow to react to, uh, being very slow to reach uh, milestones in development, such as learning to crawl or losing skills that they've acquired already. So a child might be able to crawl, and then after a while they're no longer able to crawl because the nerves that were able that were responsible for coordinating their movement have died. So is this affecting? The development of children, or is it reversing development? It's reversing it, really. So the reason that it, the reason that you would see this delay in the developmental milestones, is just because the networks that are being created are then being undone by this condition. So if you imagine that these nerves create a network, and you have this kind of circuit going on, but then because of this. Uh, degeneration of the nerves, some of the some of the uh, wires in that circuit disappear, and therefore you can't make the same connection, so you can't say that word, or you can't raise your head, or you can't crawl. Okay, so what are the other symptoms? Because so far this just kind of sounds like a developmental issue to me. It just sounds like it might well, yeah, so this is where you get some of the, uh, the the nastier symptoms as well. So you get floppiness and weakness. So this is another one that would cause what people would know as floppy baby syndrome. Uh, and this keeps getting worse and worse until the baby is paralyzed. So baby could move and then stops moving. Yeah, so in some cases, uh, a family will have a child. They will be crawling. So, you know, if this kicks in at six months, child's probably crawling. And then slowly they stop being able to crawl, they stop being able to lift their head, and they're just floppy and they're paralysed on the floor. Oh my and goodness. Happen, you know, depending so, on their condition, how quickly will vary. So it's quite different to other things where you just have an infant that never seems to to develop or be well. The baby seems well at first. Yeah, this is more something where very early on you realize something's wrong, but it's not necessarily that a child doesn't re it doesn't reach the milestone. In, some, in a lot of cases, they can reach the milestone and then it's taken away from them. Mm. I know, this is an awful condition. There are more symptoms. So there's difficulty swallowing, so choking can be an issue for children with Tay-Sachs. Uh, loss of vision or hearing, because again, the nerves that are sending signals from the eye or the ear they start dying, so you can't hear after a while, or you can't see, or you can't process these images that are, uh, images and sounds that are sent to you. Can it muscle stiffness? Again, this is to do with circuit, basically circuitry problems, is a simple way of putting it, and seizures. So it's not just like one bit of your body affected, it's every nerve in your body. Well, so it affects the nerves in the brain and the spinal cord. And the brain and spinal cord supply every nerve in the body. So it's going to affect all of your senses, whether you can move, whether you can speak. How you think. Everything. Oh no. Yeah, this is a very, 
very serious condition. So I presume that's not everything. Then what happens? Children usually die between three and five years old. And what's the actual cause of death? It will depend on the child. They might die of infections because they're not able to, uh, they're, they're more prone to infections. They might die from suffocation because Wait, they're why not... why are they more prone to infections? So they're more prone to infections because you can't cough, for example, to clear um, mucus from you. So you get builds up of mucus, which means you get more infections in the lungs. Um, you're just weakened in general because you're not able to eat as effectively, so you're then more prone to infection as well. So children can die of infection uh, if the nerves supplying the heart die, or you know the nervous system. Uh, if the nervous system controlling your heart rate uh, they die, then you could die from cardiac problems. Um, you could die from suffocation because the nerves that are sending signals to the lungs, like so, there's a part of the brain called the uh, the medulla. And that part, its main responsibility is heart and lung function. If those nerves die, your brain is not sending and coordinating signals for those two organs. So that's a very definite way of dying. Because you just can't breathe because the muscles won't move. Yeah, basically. Oh my goodness. So it's, yeah, it's awful. Um, and thankfully, it can be diagnosed quite easily. Okay, how? So there is a test called an enzyme assay. Now, the reason this works is that, I'll go into a bit more detail later, but Tay-Sachs is due to a particular enzyme not working as effectively as it should. So people take that take a sample from a patient, they separate the enzyme out from the rest of it, and they test how well it's working. If it's not working as well as it should, then the patient has Tay-Sachs. Can you remind me what an enzyme is? Enzyme is a protein, that, it's a pro, it's a, it was called a biological catalyst. It's a protein that facilitates a reaction. So... Why can't we just call these things proteins? We call everything else a protein. Well, because some proteins are for structure. Enzymes are the proteins responsible for making things happen, is the way to think about it. So... For example, you have enzymes that break down, pro break down proteins and fats and sugars in your body so that you can digest things. They, okay. they make reactions, they make chemical reactions happen, is the way to think of it. They're responsible for signals happening a lot of the time. So we're checking if the enzyme is as active as it should be. So is it turning product A into product B as many times in a minute as it should be, for example? Okay, and is that due to the amount of the enzyme in your... Is this in your blood? Uh, so it's in your nerves. What? So it's an enzyme in your nerves. So I'll go into a bit more detail about it later, but basically you have an enzyme in your nerves that breaks down a waste product, essentially a waste product. If you take that enzyme to test it and it's not breaking down that product as quickly as it should be, so it's not about the amount of enzyme, it's about how effective the enzyme Sorry, is. Sorry, no, I'm confused about the, the test itself. So what is an enzyme assay? Okay, for this condition, you've got to take the enzyme from where it is in the body, where it's active. This is found in your nerves. So you'd have to either take nerve tissue, or you'd have to take some liquid that 
is in contact with it, so cerebral spinal spinal fluid. Brain fluid? Yeah, or spinal fluid. It's, it's the liquid that basically kind of helps cushion the brain and spine. That creeps me out. That creeps me out way more than just taking blood. I mean, would it creep you out more to say that I've had a spinal tap put into me? Ooh, calling it a spinal tap makes it so much worse. It sounds like you're an oak tree and you're just... No, sounds like you're a maple tree and you're just tapping it for syrup. Kind of, but to the best of my knowledge, the anaesthetist was not putting a little cup underneath and trying to drink <laughs> spinal fluid. But no, in, in my case, the spinal tap was to put something into my spine. But you can use a spinal tap to take stuff out the spine. So test for meningitis is, uh, uses that. But you can also get some of that fluid. You get the enzyme. So, so they've drained your lovely spine syrup. Yes. <laughs> that, that is a very bizarre way of thinking about it, but yeah. And then they purify the enzyme from it. And then what they do is they test how well it works. So they know, they know this enzyme turns product A into product B. So what they do is they check over this amount of time how much of product A has been changed into product B. So you're and they checking... compare it to a normal version of it. If it's going at the same rate as the normal version, you know the person's fine. If it's slower, so you have less product B at the end of the minute than you do compared to this regular control, then you know that that enzyme's not working as well, and that means the person has Tay-Sachs. So somebody with Tay-Sachs, they still have this enzyme in the same amounts, and it's just not working as well? Yeah, it's not as good. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, but it, it means you have a straightforward test. Okay, so you test it, you test the baby by draining the spinal syrup. Taking a little bit, yeah. How old are they when you do this? Uh, I, I guess it would depend on when their symptoms show. So you might be doing this when someone's about six months or a year old. So this isn't one of those that we kind of test all the babies for? No. Okay. No. Um, there are some other tests you can do. These ones are easier to explain. You have the, an eye exam. So they're looking for, there's a part in the back of the eye called the retina, which is where the light goes. It has all your light sensors. Okay. So, but there's a part within the retina, which is like a little circle called the macula. It's a slightly different color. Now in people with Tay-Sachs, it's a very different color. It's like cherry red. Like, you know, that cherry that you put on top of a sundae? It's like a very, very bright color. So you look at that and you go, oh, that's a very strong, uh, that's a very strong indicator. That's a really weird indicator for a disease. Yeah. I feel like we've not discussed anything with that kind of indicator before. No, we haven't. Why is it bright red? I don't know why it's bright red. Okay. I don't like thinking this much about eyes. Can we move on? Yeah. Okay, so the, the next thing you can do is genetic screen, because we know which gene is mutated. Why would you why would you take spinal syrup when you could just do this? Cost, potentially. A lot of these genetic screen ones are done privately. Oh, okay. So it's cheaper to take spinal syrup than to than to just take some blood and do a genetic test. It's the cost of a needle and then a very cheap assay compared to the genetic assay which is more com more complicated and more expensive. 
Okay. Have I ruined spinal fluid for you forever now by calling it spinal syrup? No, it hasn't really affected my view on uh, spinal fluid. It's uh, it's a thing that kind of always makes me feel a little uncomfortable anyway. Well, that's no fun. I'm not here to ruin things for you. What am I here for? Well, you haven't had a needle put in your spine, so you know. Yeah, calm down, Banjo. So, the genetic tests, on the other hand, are typically done prenatal. So, if you remember these ones, chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis? Uh, amniocentesis is testing the amniotic fluid. Yep. The other one you said is a thing that doctors do. It's the placenta. Okay. You take a bit of uh-huh. the placenta. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was just getting there, Aunt. Come on. Well, I don't want you to overstretch yourself right now until we get into the meat of the matter. Anyway, the other test is pre-implantation. So that's what you would use for in vitro fertilization. Which makes sense. When you consider how serious this is, you'd rather just avoid getting it in the first place. Or avoid having a child with it in the first place. You'd rather have a child that doesn't have to suffer it. So that's when, in a lab setting, you're checking fertilized eggs for their genetic material so you know before you implant any eggs in the mother what the baby will have. Yes. Yeah, and that's uh, obviously... With a lot of genetic conditions, that's the, if you can afford it, the easiest way to control a condition. Just prevent having it in the first place. Yeah, but it's of course not an option for many people. No, I would and, say most people don't have that liberty. And or want <laughs> to become pregnant in that way. Yeah, I think that for a decent number of people, IVF is kind of unsettling. Like, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's given people, it's given a lot of people healthy lives and stuff, but not everyone fully understands it. And some people's beliefs sometimes clash with it as well, which means that, you know, it's understandable. Not everyone wants to do it. Okay. So back to Tay Sachs. What is the outlook for patients? You said it is, you, you said that children die between ages three and five? Yeah. And there's no cure. Do they always last till three? Well, there's a bit of a range, obviously, but usually it's about three, yeah. So so parents find out when their child's, like, six months and then just have to wait? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, this is horrifying. I don't like this one. I know, I know. Like, there are some promising things later. But, unfortunately, so as of 2010, so obviously that, that's like 10 years ago, but I wasn't, but the, some of the papers I find, they set these benchmarks the times that the papers were published. There were no treatments that could slow the progression as of 2010. There could be some in the future, and there might be some, but I, from what I found in the reading, there wasn't anything that actually slows the progression of the disease. So a child gets it, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen at whatever rate it's happening at. This is terrible. Please tell me something happy. Well, there are treatments to make things better for a child while they're around. Okay. The anti-seizure drugs, obviously stop them going through the, or reduce the chance of them going through the trauma of uh, seizures during this time. Why seizures? 
because you've got damage within the brain, signals start firing off in an uncoordinated manner, and that's the basis of a seizure? So a seizure is just when, when your nerves go, ah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's like, imagine that the nerves within your brain were having a panic attack. So all the nerves go, ah, and so random bits of your body move. Yeah, that's like, that's a good way of just kind of summarizing it. Don't seizures cause further damage for people? They can do, which is why a good, why having anti-seizure drugs is quite helpful for to try and maintain quality of life for children with Tay-Sachs while they're around. So that they don't have a seizure and get suddenly much worse? Yes. Okay. Otherwise there's physiotherapy, speech therapy. Again, a lot of this is to uh, maximize, the, uh, maximize what is available. Um, a bit like with muscular dystrophy, it's, you know, while it's still there, working on it as much as possible so that the child can get the most out of their life. Because you're not prevented from being able to learn or from being able to move, but you can then lose those skills. It's so strange, the idea of losing, of only losing the skills. And when this is young children, that everything they do is new. Mm. So how how do you develop at the same time as you're deteriorating? Yeah, that's um that's quite complicated and I I'm not equipped to discuss that one. Um the last one I have for kind of current readily available treatments is antibiotics, and that's to control infections. Remember how I said that children because they are weakened from not being able to swallow things and eat as well or not being able to cough as well if they've got some nervous signal problems around there, that they are more prone to infections. Antibiotics can obviously help with that if they're bacterial. Yeah. Um, otherwise, other approaches for uh, families with with uh, families with Tay-Sachs is that parents will typically be counselled about end-of-life issues. Oh my gosh. Because obviously that's an awful thing to discuss, but they need to. Most commonly, dealing with Tay-Sachs is covered through pre pre uh, through prevention. And a very successful example of that, I, assume, I mentioned in the story, but is what's, what's called quote-unquote mate selection. So in Orthodox Jewish circles, there's an or organization called Dor Yeshurim, and they carry out these anonymous genetic screenings, and then people within the community can send their ID to Dor Yeshurim with each other and say, we just want you to check whether or not we could, you know, pass, we could have a child with a, with a hereditary condition. And then they could come back and say, you guys are the carrier, you guys together are carriers for these things and therefore could have a child with these conditions. And then they leave the decision up to the, the couple. So they might decide, okay, we won't have children or, Okay, maybe we should find other people, or maybe we should have, uh, maybe maybe we should have uh, some sort of IVF therapy. Uh, depending on both the condition and the individual's views. That's really cool. So this sounds like a really cool organization. Is it only for Jewish people? What what is the link here to this this community? So. The link to this uh, community is that Tay-Sachs is more prevalent in Ashkenazi Jewish people, the people of that heritage. 
So when you look at it, it's very rare in the general population with about one in every 320,000 US births. Being, it's pretty rare. Being someone with Tay-Sachs, yeah. However, if that is someone of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, that goes to one in three and a half thousand births. That seems pretty high. So is this um, a a community from a certain part of the world that share this religious... Yes, there are some uh, historical aspects to that, which we'll go into after the break. But as a result of that, Dor Yeshurun was founded because uh, it, this condition affected Jewish communities particularly aggressively, uh, particularly harshly, and they needed a way of uh, protecting families in a sense, you know, making sure that they could uh, seek services to avoid this condition where possible, but also in a way that was approved by rabbis so that orthodox followers of the faith felt comfortable and safe in doing so. So outside of this community, you probably wouldn't even think twice about this condition? Not typically, no. So, th so this foundation can really help this community be able to continue to, um, can continue to reproduce with other members of their community with a much lower risk? Yeah, well, they can... They can essentially, if everyone is involved and all the people they interact with involved, they can remove the risk. Wow. So it, it's done wonderful work. So tell me more about Tay-Sachs disease. What, what kind of condition is it? So this is what's called an autosomal recessive condition. Can you remember what that means? Recessive, so you need to get it from both your mother and your father. Autosomal, so it's not sex-linked. Correct. Yep, you described that perfectly. And the gene affected is something called HEXA. HEXA? And this gene encodes an enzyme. So remember how I said that there are enzyme assays and stuff? This is what the enzyme is. It's called beta-hexoaminidase A. So we're going with HEXA. <laughs> okay. And this is important for uh, the survival of the brain's spinal cord. And the way it works is that... Uh, fatty substances can build up in the nerves just kind of like as a waste product and there's things getting stored in it and this enzyme breaks down excessive amounts of that fatty of these fatty substances to protect the nerves so it's a little it's a cleaner enzyme yeah it's like a hoover in some ways <laughs> okay so your hexa hoover enzyme is going going around breaking these things down so they can get rid of it yeah <laughs> well if it's a hoover then it is well, it's more like Fruit Ninja. <laughs> but Fat Ninja. <laughs> We've got off the rails here. A little bit, yeah. Okay, so you have your little Hoover enzyme going through the nerves, sucking up waste product. It doesn't suck them up, it breaks them down. This is why I was saying Fat Ninja. <laughs> Hoover. Pick your metaphor. Stick with it. It's a chopper. Think of it more like a wood chipper. <laughs> okay, you have your wood chipper enzyme. Breaking down bits of fat in the nerves. Yes. What happens when your little wood chipper enzyme is not good at chipping? So the, uh, the Tay-Sachs mutation stops this enzyme from doing that. So the enzyme just doesn't really work or it works a hell of a lot less. So it's still there and it's still being produced in the same amount. But it's a bit useless. Oh, so. poor... Poor Tay-Sachs hexa-enzyme. Yeah. It's doing its best. Yeah. So, as a result, you get a build-up of uh, this fatty substance, 
I'm not going to name it because that'll just give you a headache. But it builds up, particularly in the neurons of the brain. And when there's too much of it, they are unable to do the normal functions that allow them to survive, so the nerves die. So so this fatty substance builds up. Mm-hmm. How, do, how is it stopping the nerve from functioning? It poisons it. Poisons it? Yeah. So think about, you know, when we see those YouTubers that do like really sadistic versions of The Sims, where they lock everyone in a bathroom and then they make them eat and then they have all their waste there and it builds where up. Where is this going? And they break down. They can't get rid of the waste products. The waste product builds up and up and up and they just deteriorate. That was an interesting comparison. Do you understand what I mean, though? Too much waste product. Can't get rid of it. So it's blocking your nerve from... To stay alive. Doing the things it needs to stay alive, basically, yeah. Okay. So your nerves just kind of die? Yeah, they die. No kind of to it. Okay, and so this kind of happens gradually to all your nerves? It happens to the nerves in your brain and your spinal cord. But you don't know kind of which nerve's going to go first, and they don't all go at once. No, there's not a specific order. But uh, yeah, so as a result, it gets poisoned. They, they start getting poisoned, they start dying, and that's where you get all, why you get such a wide range of symptoms. Okay. And uh, with this one... I did not look into other illnesses caused by the disease because this is a condition that is incredibly serious. There isn't anything around it, really. Like, why would there be? Because you don't live long enough to have any other issues. So that's obviously quite a dark note to end on. So I want to end on something a little bit nicer, which is remember that there is an organization that has been allowing family, that has been facilitating families having children safely so that they don't have to worry about Tay-Sachs. And when we come back after the break, there's going to be some really fun history. History! So we'll see you in a moment. Great. Okay, and we're back. History time! Yeah, it's history time. Give me the good stuff. Like spinal maple syrup good stuff, or...? (laughs) That was your analogy. Give me the nice history, please. Of course. So, as far as written records are concerned, we don't have much going very far back. Uh, That would make sense. So something that kills children at such a young age it might be difficult to distinguish it when child when infant mortality has been fairly high for a very long time yeah that makes sense however there have been some research that has been tracing the mutations so figuring out where it came from yes so research was conducted to try and work out how old the mutation is for Tay-Sachs or at least how old some of the mutations are for Tay-Sachs and one uh, one of the mutations that's found most commonly in people of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage was dated back to the 8th century AD. Ooh. And it was believed that it occurred as a founder mutation in the Ashkenazi population. So there was this uh, bottleneck in the population 
between 600 and 800 years ago. And uh, some of the data suggests that current Ashkenazi people originate from a population of just 350 people. Okay, we got to break that down. Who are these people? Tell me a story. So, so the Ashkenazi are a small population, or originally a small population of Jewish people who moved to Europe from the Middle East around the early Middle Ages, so about 450 to 550 AD. And the Ashkenazi themselves were considered a distinct group around the Carolingian unification. And which area did you say they were from? Google says they're from the Rhineland Valley, so that would be Germany and France. Okay. And uh, the Carolingian unification is about 800 to 888 AD. This is uh, Charlemagne's empire, the Holy Roman Empire in Western Europe. Oh, cool. I've never heard it called Carolingian. I believe that was uh, his sons. Huh. Okay, um, I'm resisting the urge to Google. No, Google, just in case I'm wrong. So later on, there was a bottleneck in the population. So there was like a shrinking of the population, possibly due to illness or something. Uh, it's not it's not known what caused the bottleneck, but this happened between 1200 and 1400 AD. And then there was a more recent rapid growth in the population afterwards which is thought to have made the mutation significantly more common. As I said earlier, people who have Ashkenazi heritage are believed to, or the data suggests that they originate from a population of 350 people. That's all the people we've tested of Ashkenazi heritage for their Okay, so this population shrunk massively and like barely survived yes and then expanded out from this one tiny pool of people yeah very quickly so a lot of people so this mutation must have existed in the population and become a lot more common as they shrunk and then it grew from that so then more people got the disease compared to other people did you say it was a founder mutation so does that mean that it originated in this population no, so a founder... Well, that's a silly name, then. Well, no, so so what it means is it's more common because people founded an area. So if a population has a mutation at the same rate as everyone else, let's say, they then go and found a place, which in this case would be like Ashkenazi region, and then their population shrinks because a relatively small group of them came there, and then you have, you know, the population instability that can happen from going to a new area. Then you have a small pool of people where there are more, comparatively more people with the mutation. So when the population then grows from that lot, for the overall community, you have more people with the mutation. And that's why it's called the founder effect, because they founded a region, and that founding of a region resulted in the condition being more common. Not because they are the origin of the condition. Not necessarily, no. I do not like that name that is confusing. Well, I think part of the reason that they don't like to say that is because it potentially puts blame on a group. Yeah, but so so we know that the condition existed. Yes, and it, it definitely existed before then. And and we think it existed. It existed all over the world. Uh, quite likely, or at least from like Europe and the Middle East. Uh, in the states, as I said that earlier, there was uh, one in three hundred twenty thousand births. Um and. America is a big melting pot of uh, a lot of different origins, particularly of uh, European descent. And um, so, so the reason it's so common in this one population is because of its relative isolation and its the small 
the small group of people it came from, which made it easier for a recessive disease to become more common. Yes. Okay. So, so how has this mutation survived? It definitely kills before you can have your own children. Yeah, definitely. So there are, uh, there are three reasons that have been hypothesized by scientists. One is heterozygote advantage. So if you have one copy of the recessive gene, you benefit in some way. What's the benefit? So far, there's no evidence to support that one. So that's why it's a hypothesis. <laughs> so that's, that's, an, that's an educated guess. The next one is... But we don't know what the benefit is. No, but so many recessive conditions do have a heterozygote advantage that it's worth exploring. Doesn't mean they know it. That's why it's a hypothesis. They think so, this could be a reason. So if you're a carrier of Tay-Sachs, you might have a secret superpower and we just don't realize it yet. I'm not going to say that. The next hypothesis is what's called reproductive compensation. And what this means is, particularly, particularly further back, parents who lost a child because of a disease tended to, in quotes, compensate by having additional children because... If you knew that your children were likely to die because of something, you'd have more children in the hopes that you have children survive to adulthood. So ch families with disease in the family had more children in the hopes that they would have enough survive to adulthood. And so, 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 so a family with, uh, that carried Tay-Sachs might have way more children than their neighbors and therefore produce more potential carriers. Making it definite that the disease survives. Survives. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it makes sense, particularly in uh, old agricultural communities. Where, yeah, you need... You need children to look after things when you physically can't anymore. Yeah. And then the other one, as I mentioned before, which has, been, which has some support from what I explained to you before, was the founder effect. The idea that high instance of a mutation happens because a population goes to a new area, it shrinks, and then from that smaller group of people, th they grow. Okay. Interestingly, Tay-Sachs disease uh, was actually one of the first genetic disorders for which um, ep the epidemiology was studied using molecular data, so using the DNA. Oh. And uh, studies of Tay-Sachs using the... the uh, these genetic techniques have brought an emerging consensus amongst researchers that supports the founder effect theory. So although there are three hypotheses at the moment, the strongest candidate is that the founder effect is why the mutation has survived. Is this something you could completely get rid of? I mean, if you could remove all instances of the mutation, but that's, that's, uh, I, I don't think anyone could manage something of that scale. And that's, you're getting into some very uh, murky territory if you're trying to prevent people having carriers. Okay. But you can significantly reduce instances. Yes. Yeah, and that's that example is shown with Dor Yesherin. So tell me about the science history on this. Okay, so this condition was first characterized by two doctors, Warren Tay and Bernard Sachs. Tay Sachs? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the first cases were amongst Ashkenazi Jewish families in the late eighteen hundreds. Tay reported his observations in 1881, and he'd found three cases in a single family by 1884. Ooh, yeah. so Tay was treating members of this population and noticed the pattern. Yeah. 
And then years later, Bernard Sachs, who was a neurologist, reported some similar findings to his colleagues at the New York Neurological Society, where he reported a case of what, was what he called arrested cerebral development. Okay, so this is quite early. They've noticed this pattern. Yeah, but it would take about 100 years before the mutation was identified. So it was 1988 when a uh, mutation in the hexagene found from Ashkenazi Jewish patients was actually identified. Okay. It, what about in the meantime? Did did anybody realize it was a recessive condition that could be avoided? I think that uh, that Warren Tay worked that one out. Cool. So now we're going on to what there is in the future. And there is at least something. Nice things in the future? A little bit. So there's something called the Jacob Sheep model. Sheep? Yeah. Ah. So Jacob Sheep get Tay-Sachs and are a promising model for the development of future genes. Oh, wait, we're actually talking about sheep? Yes. I thought you were talking about a guy called Jacob Sheep and I was being terrible at making sheep noises. No. That's why you let me make a sheep noise. Yeah. Okay, actual sheep. Oh, this got much more exciting. Why are we talking about sheep again? So these sheep get this specific type of sheep, the Jacob sheep, get Tay-Sachs. So they're used as a model. So you don't have to test things on babies, but these, they, they naturally can get Tay-Sachs. So what? This is wild. Why didn't you mention earlier that sheep can get this? Can other things get it? Not that I'm aware of. Just this one type of sheep? Yeah, from what I could find. What? This was a twist. Well, so I didn't want to mention it earlier because I wanted to kind of bring it forward for future research. But interestingly, this hexagene, the, the one that gets mutated to cause Tay-Sachs, it's 80% identical to humans. The is, one. is that a lot for genes? That's, that, that's good. That's very good. Oh, okay. That, and that's why people think that we could potentially develop a gene therapy by using these sheep as a model. Save the baby sheep. Mm-hmm. And you can then use saving the baby sheep to save baby humans. The baby sheep! I know, humans aren't as woolly, but they still need help. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, is there anything else besides sheep treatment? No, no, there isn't. This is why earlier oh. on, even though it said up to 2010, there'd been nothing to prolong the, uh, nothing to slow down the onset of Tay-Sachs. I hadn't found evidence of anything since then either. Um, but yeah, that's it for future research so far. Okay, so... What about right now? What can we do to destigmatize the condition? Well, I think it's probably worth dealing with some of the issues that have come around it. Unfortunately, to some extent, Tay-Sachs has been used as an excuse to fuel some people's racism. Aww. So reports of Tay-Sachs disease have contributed to a perception amongst nativists that Jews were an inferior race. N nativists? Yeah, so this would have been typically uh, post-World War II America. Oh, okay. Because America's got large Jewish populations, and there have been a few of these uh, nativism outbreaks that have happened throughout the Western world. Okay. It's, it's been used to fuel racist rhetoric. Oh, no. So, yeah, and there's, when I did a lot of searching that resulted in stigma about Jews and genetics, there was 
a lot of hits about eugenics. So in general, I'm not touching this stuff with a barge pole. Okay, so Tay-Sachs is very interwoven with all the historical and still some present issues uh, to do with hatred of um, hatred of Jews and negative stereotypes about them and, of course, the Holocaust and the eugenics movements in, in the Western world in the early 1900s. Yeah, they're, they're tied quite heavily with that. So there are some myths we'd obviously like to dispel. Yes, let's point. do that. So the common myth is that this is a Jewish disease, so it doesn't affect non-Jewish people. Nope. Nope, it's more common in Jewish people, that's true. But it still exists in the general population, so it's not like if someone has a child with Tay-Sachs, they're secretly Jewish, and nor is that a problem. So, yeah, I don't know, like, there are certain, like, it's just something I can't quite get my head around. The uh, the second myth is that both parents of an individual have to be Ashkenazi Jewish for screening to be relevant. Oh, so, well, I guess it would be most relevant. Mm-hmm. But if, if one partner thinks they might be a carrier, it's probably worth you both getting tested anyways. Yeah, and uh, Dor Yeshrim actually recommends screening for anyone who has at least one Ashkenazi Jewish grandparent. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all about play, playing it safe, really, because there's no harm to getting yourself screened, and it could save you a lot of heartache later on. Yeah. And on the end of that, we are at the end of the episode, so I've just got a little bit of reading. Uh, there's the paper that's uh, used to that's uh, characterized the founder effect and gave a little bit of the history, which is called the origin and spread of the one two seven eight INS INS TATC mutation causing Tay-Sachs disease in Ashkenazi Jews, genetic drift as a robust and parsimonious hypothesis by Frisch et al. You can read that one if you would like. I understand that that is a bit of a headache hearing the title. <laughs> It had genetic drift in the title? Yes, it did. And we didn't talk about it? <laughs> well, I mentioned it, I just didn't... Uh, we, we did we did talk about it, but I just didn't mention the name of the mutation because it's a pain. But genetic drift? Yes. So, I, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I thought it was really interesting. If you liked it, get in touch with us. Leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at geneticdrift1 or email us at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join our Facebook group and get involved in the conversation there. And it looks like Banjo's waking up, so it's probably a good thing that we're wrapping up now. The music for this podcast, as with every other episode, is published by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. Yeah, I know Banjo's fine. And on that note, please treat everyone respectfully because you can't see the genes that don't expect to see the illness. That's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Banjo. Bye! <laughs>